Well, I don't know about you, but it's been a pretty busy week for me and for us as a church. Uh, Many of you might have noticed that we had the Harvest Festival this week where we had hundreds of people show up. Uh, It was all organized by Drew Lynn and went fantastic. Drew Lynn, uh, are you here? Great job. Uh, There she is. Uh, Did she do an excellent job? Just fantastic. Uh, just yesterday, uh, we got to marry Joseph and Claudia, and uh, they're actually here this morning as well. So they got married yesterday, they're here for church. Um, don't know what excuses you have for not coming to church, but uh, they're here. And uh, we also had Halloween this week. My family uh, actually thinks of it as Reformation Day. Some people call it Halloween on Thursday. Uh, but just like you for Halloween on Reformation Day, we take our chairs out, we dress up, we hand out candy to kids that come up, and we uh, visit with the neighbors and meet neighbors and all that kind of thing. So uh, this year, I, I brought my lawn chair out, and I put it in the driveway, and I had my bag full of 400 pieces of candy. Uh, I, I made sure each kid only got three pieces so that we could make it through the night. And uh, I, I don't know if you know me well, but sometimes I have kind of a, a I would say, an acquired taste uh, of a sense of humor. Uh, not everybody always gets it. Um, you might notice that I have a lot of jo- jokes that fall flat. Um, it's because I'm, I'm unique in my sense of humor. And uh, so I was uh, really finding great pleasure on Halloween as kids would come up in their costumes and they would go to reach their hand down in the bag and grab some candy out. And I would say, okay, go ahead and take three pieces, whichever three you want. And they would go to grab in and the first one they would take, I would say, oh, not that one, that one's mine. Now, if you've ever seen a, a, a kid terrified, uh, and Halloween's the time to do it, that was the moment. They would throw it back and jump back and say, I understand mine. I'm not, you can have it. Um, and I said, do you want any more? No, I'm good. We're going to go to the next house. This is scary. Um, so good job, pastor. You scared the kids. It's Halloween. Um, but it was interesting. In that moment, I, I was thinking about this week's sermon, and I was reminded of a, a character Uh, that really fits into that. See, we, I think, in our hearts, if left to ourselves, have that tendency to scream out, mine, at all kinds of places. In fact, you, you might be thinking of some ways in which your heart cries out, mine, even today. You know, we think about our money. It's my money. It's, it's my house. That's my family. These are my things, and it's my ministry. We just have this possessive sort of nature about us that we begin to believe that the things that God has given us are ours first and not his. Well, this morning, what we're going to recognize is that's actually a very dangerous spiritual condition. It is one that is associated with the sense of ownership and a sense that we can make ourselves safe and secure with the possessions that have been given to us. We tell ourselves that we don't need another king crown is already mine. And I might not be a great king like Saul or like David, but I'm a little king with my own little realm, and I'm very safe behind the walls that I've created for myself. We're back in our series in the life of David. He was an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. And this morning we are introduced to two characters that really contrast with one another, Nabal and his wife Abigail. Uh, Nabal is a guy that when you hear his name, Uh, You are going to be thinking in your mind for the rest of time when you hear of him, the voice of Mr. T crying out, I pity the fool. This is that guy. Now, if you're just joining us, let me catch you up to speed to what got us here. The people of Israel desired a king like the nations who would go out and fight for his people. 
Now Samuel anointed Saul as king, but he quickly sinned against the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 15, it ends saying the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And by the way, so did Samuel. Now, chapter 16 picks up with God sending Samuel to anoint David as the new king of Israel. And the Spirit rushed upon him just as the Spirit departed from Saul. Now, so far we've seen that David is that Spirit-anointed king or Messiah who has a heart after God's heart and fights for God's people. But he doesn't win his battles with sword and spear, but rather in the power of the Lord. That, that's this king. He's a king that prepares the way for Jesus, who is the greater Messiah. But there's a puzzle in this book. You remember that Saul is the present king. David is the future king. But we don't exactly understand how David is going to take the throne, especially since he's made these covenants along the way with Jonathan and with Saul, that he will not take out their household, including Saul. Now chapters 24 to 26 go together. They begin and end with David sparing Saul's life. It's really clear. And and between David's experiences of sparing Saul, we find right smack dab in the middle of the text that we're looking at today, chapter 25, where there's this other character, Nabal, that shows up that David meets with. And we'll find that this Nabal looks so much like Saul. Now, chapter 24 is going to end with Saul. It ended with Saul acknowledging David as God's king. And chapter 25 begins with the death of that judge Samuel, which signals another stage in David stepping towards the throne. Well, if you're taking notes, our big idea this morning is this. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see that God's king relents of wrath towards those who repent of sin. God's king relents of wrath towards those who repent of sin. Now, before we begin, let me just pray for us that God would help us along the way. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before you, we have sung that it is well with our souls, but I am sure there are those this morning who are here, and their soul is at war and raging against them, Father. They are longing to be able to say that it is well with their soul, but Lord, they know that it is not. And Father, we pray this morning that as we come to your word, that your word would breathe fresh life into our souls, that you would give us fresh hope in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might be transformed more in the image of the Son who came to save us. Lord, do your work in us today, we pray, through the power of your word and by the power of your spirit. It's in that great name of your Son that we do come before you. Amen. Well, the first thing we see this. We see the introducing of the original odd couple in verses 1 to 8. The introducing of the original odd couple. Now, perhaps David has just returned from the nationwide funeral for Samuel. Uh, And this is uh, now taking on, uh, you find him in the wilderness of Paran, where he continues to avoid Saul. Well, the scene begins with a very rich man. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Uh, I'm guessing that's the equivalent of um, maybe a, a couple of Land Rovers and, um, I don't know, a pool and uh, really nice stuff. He's a wealthy guy. But it's shearing season and his sheep are being sent to Carmel. Now, verse 3 highlights this man's wife as his polar opposite. You have Nabal and Abigail. 
Now catch what it says in verse 3. This is what it says. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a a Calebite. Now there's a ton of humor here, even in in these verses right here. See, Nabal's name literally means fool. And he's harsh and badly behaved. Now can you imagine your mom naming you fool? There are other ways this route could be taken, like a wineskin or something like that. Maybe that's what they had in mind. But fool stuck. Fool stuck for Nabal. And he's badly behaved. Now, badly behaved, it's not describing a kind of guy that like sort of burps unapologetically at meals, right? That's not it. It actually, if you look at it, is describing someone who is known as being severe and evil. He's oppressive in his actions towards those who are under him, probably his wife, his servants, others. He's also a kinsman of David, a Calebite from Judah. Now, Abigail is Nabal's opposite. See, Nabal, he, he is quite different from his wife. You wonder how these two got together. Notice that she's discerning and beautiful, literally good and pretty. She's good and pretty, and he's evil and ugly. She's a foil for her husband. And I love her name, Abigail. It means, my father is joy. And that word for joy is actually a word that often speaks to the kind of joy that God's people had in God. But maybe it's her earthly father that she's taking joy in. Either way, just think about it. This is a woman who could literally say, my father is joy, but my husband is a fool. Some of you could say that, but it wouldn't be so literal. Now the text doesn't land here, but, but think about it for just a second. This really is the original odd couple. Second, David's request, he requests food from his father in verses 6 to 8. Now you'll notice that the story picks up in 6 to 8. He sends 10 young men, David does, to his kinsmen. And he's asking for hospitality and, and recognition for the way that he has served him. And notice what he says in verses 6 to 8. This is what he tells his, ser- his servants to tell Nabal, Nabal when, he goes to, when they go to him. It says this, And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace to your house and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time that we were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So it's, it's shearing season, setting the stage. A big event which concluded with a great feast. David's men are hungry. They've been working to, to really protect the flock and the, the shepherds of the flocks. And David says he's been shepherding the flocks of Nabal and he wants to take part in the feast that is to come. He has kind of a sort of right to it. David is still the good shepherd, and he approaches him with a, a threefold greeting of peace to him, to his house, to all he owns. But notice he also, as he speaks to him, David refers to himself as your son David. Really pointing to the familial connection and saying, look, I am, I'm family, I'm kinsman, I am humbling myself before you. And Na- David here is asking Nabal, a rich, evil, foolish man, to repay him good for good. So you're wondering, how is Nabal going to respond? Well, 
Third, notice Nabal rejects the son of Jesse in verses 10 to 13. Nabal rejects the son of Jesse. Check it out. Here's what he says in verses 10 to 13. He says this. He says, And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shepherds and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strapped on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up for David while 200 remained with the baggage. Did you catch that? Nabal says, David who? He's, he's not asking for information, right? He's not saying, oh, well, tell me about this David. I don't think I quite remember him. Is he like a distant family member? As though he's not heard of him? No, he is rejecting David with, he's not my son. He, he's the son of Jesse, not a son of me or of mine, not a son of the great Nabal. And here, Nabal, again, looks so much like King Saul, who rejects David at every single turn. In fact, Saul also calls David the son of Jesse, if you remember, in chapters 20 and 22. In fact, if you scan down to verse 36, you'll notice how Nabal thinks of himself as kind of a king, or he's being described as a kind of a king in the sense that he is throwing a feast like what? Like the feast of a king. See, Nabal is a rich fool who sees himself as insulated against any need for a new king. He's safe. He's secure. And though David has been faithful, he sees him as nothing more than a threat to his power, his wealth, his influence, and his security. And he labels the faithful servant David as nothing more than just another rebel servant who has broken away from his master. David expects goodwill from his kinman Nabal as a, a sojourner. David receives an evil rejection notice. He kept, he kept Nabal's sheep, but Nabal labels him just another rebel. That had to sting David. I mean, just think about this. He, he's told that he is a rebel, but his father-in-law and king is the one who has abandoned him. And, and you'll notice that our chapter today ends with this statement. And by the way, Saul also took David's wife, Michael, back and gave him to another man. See, Nabal was, says, not only are you not my king, you're not my kinsman. And when David gets word, notice in verse 13, that that threefold greeting of peace is replaced by a threefold strapping up of the sword. Justice is coming, vengeance is on its way. Nabal the fool rejects God's anointed king and invites the wrath of this king upon himself. Now, you'll remember in chapter 24, David there had a chance to take Saul out, but showed him mercy. Unlike Saul, here David grabs for a sword for Nabal, and he says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. Now, the text is clear. Nabal was rich, and he was a fool. That was what he was famous for. That's what his mom named him for. Now, he, he could have been a character in Pilgrim's Progress. You know, where all the characters' names tend to mean something about who they are and who they represent? Well, that's exactly what we find here with Nabal. Now, maybe Nabal thought that he was God's anointed. 
I mean, just think about that. Even if he does think that there's a God, it seems that everything that he touched turned to gold for a season. He, he's rich, he's wealthy, he's successful. He, whatever he does and whatever he puts his hand to, he's like Midas, it turns to gold. And David's come asking for an offering from his table. But did you notice, did you see how mine-centered Nabal was? Did you see it? He has a, a strong case of mine-ism. It's all about him. He says, if you'll look there again in the text, shall I take my bread, my water, the, the, my meat that was meant for my shears and give it to those I don't know? See, that, that's my candy. Mine, mine, mine. A fool says in his heart there is no God and he rejects God's king. You don't have to have a crown to see yourself as sovereign, do you? There are all kinds of ways that we, we imagine ourselves as being safe and secure because of what we have. You can build walls of your kingdom to bring your, secure, your, your security brick by brick. Brick by brick you feel safer as you collect your 401ks and your savings accounts and your upward mobility and your degrees and your homes and your rental homes and your cars and your toys and your connections with other powerful people and even wealthy family members who gather around you. The notorious B.I.G. got it right when he said, mo money, mo problems. But Jesus did it one better whenever he said, let me tell you what the main problem with money is. The biggest central problem is this. It is more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a giant camel to pass through that tiny eye of a needle. It's not just hard. It's impossible. It cannot be done. It's easier for that camel to enter the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because it's harder for a rich man to recognize his need for a better king than himself. See, it's harder for a rich woman to recognize she's a queen who needs a greater king. And Jesus, he, he spoke a lot about money. We, we don't talk a lot about money, but Jesus spoke a lot about money. And we can't worship God and mammon according to Jesus. See, our wallets tell us a lot about what it is that we worship and whether or not we really worship Jesus as king. It tells us something about where we are putting our security and our confidence. Now, just to be clear, the Bible says that you can be wise and rich and foolish. You can also be poor and either wise or foolish. Both of those are realities. That we'll see some of that in a minute in, in Hannah's prayer. But the real question isn't how much you have on your table, but what do you do with what God has given you and how much do you trust in it? Do you see yourself as a conduit of God's grace or a hoarder of it? See, Nabal's love for all of his possessions led him to reject God's king, and it invited upon himself and his whole family the wrath of God. But Abigail, so glad we don't stop with Nabal. That would be a sad story. We have Abigail and Abigail. She's different. See, Abigail does not cry out, my bread, but my Lord. Notice, fourth, Abigail, the daughter of joy, runs to repent in verses 14 to 31. Now, first, you'll, you'll notice in 14 to 17, there's a messenger who warns Abigail about this son of worthlessness. Okay, the son of worthlessness. And she's not talking about David. 
Now, we don't have a lot of time to tarry here, but a messenger runs to warn her about Nabal's actions. And as he does in the conversation, you get this sense that this is not the first time this kind of thing has happened. He seems to make rash decisions a lot, and messengers have to come and speak to the more reasonable part of the couple, Abigail. And he says to Abigail, David's men were very good to the shepherds. In fact, they were like a wall about us day and night. They kept us safe. They protected us. And Nabal, he repaid David's good with evil. He literally yelled at them for their request. Now, despite Nabal's net worth, you'll notice in verses 14 to 17, his servant calls him a worthless man. Did you see that? He's got much worth. But his servant says he is a worthless man, literally a son of Belial. Now, if you're wondering what is that phrase, it's used sometimes in the Old Testament, and it means a whole lot of bad stuff, okay? Like Deuteronomy 13 uses it to describe sons of Belial as those who are worshiping false gods. Uh, Judges 19 uses it to describe uh, those who are rapists and murderers. Uh, The rebellious sons of Eli in 1 Samuel 2 are called sons of Belial. See, this guy, he might look like he has the favor of God because he is successful, but he is not a good guy. And his servants and his wife know it. See, Nabal's no more reasonable than Saul who kills first and asks questions later. And here Nabal rejects God's king. But his wife Abigail, when she hears this, she runs. She runs to repent. Notice in verses 18 to 22, Rejection of the son of Jesse leads to wrath. She needs to run, and verses 18 to 22 give us a window into why. So catch this. David refused to take the kingdom by sword or spear when he had a chance with Saul in chapter 24. But here in chapter 25, it's different. David chooses vengeance over mercy with a worthless fool, Nabal, who thinks himself to be a king. He's about to find out he's not a king. And Nabal rejects peace from David. But what will the beautiful, good-reasoned Abigail do? You'll notice verses 18 to 22. Abigail makes haste to gather as much food as she can. And in a hurry, she sends it along ahead of her so that it meets him on the way. And then she's going to follow behind it after he sees the goodwill that she sends before her. Now, both the messenger and Abigail, they are acting contrary to Nabal. Just to be clear, they are rebelling against their master, the very thing they claim that David was doing against Saul. But as she approaches, we begin to get a window into the heart of David in verses 21 to 22. Look there at what he says. We see the the rage that's coming. Verses 21 to 22, he says this. Now, David had said, Surely in vain... I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. You know, this is likely giving us a window into what David was thinking in verse 13. But the author places it here because he wants us to feel the danger that Abigail is needing to turn back. Now don't miss a couple of things that we find here. Notice first that David says Nabal returned evil for good. The good is guarding the sheep and all of his possessions out in the wilderness. You'll remember that David similarly charged 
Saul with returning him evil for good in chapter 24. Well, Nabal looks here again like a little Saul. But second, David's about to execute a sort of wrath against Nabal and exterminate his whole house. David even makes an oath, which might say nothing more than God will take out David's enemies. But either way, this is a strong statement. And take note, David restrained those seeking to kill Saul. And now David needs to be restrained not to kill Nabal. Now let me ask you this. Does David's angry plan sound fair? He's going to destroy every man in Nabal's house for not giving him food. See, David's righteous anger seems to pour out in unrighteousness. You don't struggle with minism when it comes to your stuff. Maybe that's you. You're like, possessions aren't my thing. But let me ask you this morning, do you struggle with minism when it comes to vengeance? When it comes to executing justice on others? Do you have issues in your heart against others that you feel like it's your job, it's, it's, it's my vengeance that needs to be executed? Are you able to actually trust God that He is the one who says vengeance is mine? See, vengeance is God's. See, I think David is often, he's often an example in the Bible. We, we saw last week of his mercy. But take note here that David, he's not perfect. He's not a perfect guy. In other words, you don't want to like say, hey, you need to marry a David-like guy, right? You need to be kind of specific. What are we talking about? Uh, maybe not like faithfulness in marriage all the time, what we're talking about. But Paul tells Christians here, when it comes to anger, and we think about David's actions, we need to be reminded, as David needed to be reminded, that we need to be angry and sin not in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and sin not. Now, maybe you've experienced a righteous anger that led you to causing all kinds of devastating destruction. It killed a relationship that was really important to you. Or a job. Or, or, or a future. There's something in the future that, that will not be yours because of your anger, your rage, and you trying to meet that out. See, anger can be righteous while your actions are sinful. And David's about to sin. But here comes Abigail running. The beautiful Abigail, she runs and she interrupts in verses 23 to 31 to prevent him. Notice, Abigail repents in verses 23 to 31. The beautiful, the wise Abigail, she seems to to enter in and almost descend like Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel, right? Everything's about to go to pot. Things are not looking good. Here comes Abigail running, subtly calling David to remember the Lord to repent of his sin and to relent of his wrath. See, Abigail throws herself down on the face on her face before David and speaks before him in verses 24 to 31. And she does this to prevent him from sinning. Catch what she says in this speech that she has to David and you get bonus points if you can count how many my lords you see as we go through. So look, 24 to 31, try to keep up with the my lords. Here she goes. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, 
Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all that the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail prevents David from sinning. How different she looks from Nabal who tells David, my, my, my. But Abigail herself comes out and throws herself at David's feet. She's prostrate before him. And in that moment, she says, my Lord, 12 times by my count. Don't know what yours is. And she says Nabal actually lives up to his name. He's a fool. But not only that, did you catch that Abigail's not only beautiful, she's a theologian. She tells David, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. She's claiming that God has used her as an instrument of restraining grace in David's life. She says, look, I I know this is something that I'm doing to, to pursue you for mercy, but I want you to know that there is something bigger that's going on. There is a greater God that is behind this, and he has sent me. He is using me in your life as an agent of restraining grace to keep you from sin. David's out for blood, but Abigail turns him back. Notice also that she reminds David of who he is. He is the king who will not save with his own hand but with the hand of the Lord. You know, it really reminds us of Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, 7-8 and verse 10, where she says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. See, God will exalt the horn of his anointed, his anointed king. God doesn't need help placing his king on his throne. And she's also resourceful. She's a theologian. She's also one who is thoughtful and she is resourceful. Notice that she gathers the food quickly and has it sent out ahead to meet David. She knows men like food, right? Like, if a guy's angry, feed him. Like, that's also what he wanted, food. But it's also an act of repentance. It's a repentance for her husband's sin of not feeding David. Now, she also reminds David that the Lord will make a sure house for him because he fights the battles of the Lord. In verse 28, See, God promises to build a sure house for a priest who will walk before God's anointed forever in 1 Samuel 2. 
Sure house is coming. But it's later in 2 Samuel 7, 17, where God promises, when he makes a covenant with David himself, that he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God will build David a sure house. In addition, I love her line in verse 29. She said, did you catch this? God will sling your enemies out as from the hollow of a sling. What did that remind you of? Did it remind you of another little story about David and a sling and a giant? Maybe back in 1 Samuel 17 where he goes before him and he takes him out with his slingshot. See, she reminded him of how he defeated the great Goliath of Gath with nothing but a sling and says, God likewise will sling your enemies out of his sling. See, she protected him from blood guilt and then ends with this one small request. And when God's done this, would you just remember your servant? Well, I want you to notice a few things here. First, what a woman. And if you're looking for a picture of what biblical femininity looks like, this is a great example, not the only great example. But she is outwardly beautiful. But even more, notice here the text is so fixated on how she's beautiful on the inside. She's humble. She's approachable. She is wise, resourceful, a problem solver, a theologian. She has a big view of God. She is gentle in her rebukes, affirming. And she lays down her life to save her people. You know, she actually, in this story in some ways, looks more like Christ even than David in some ways. Laying down her life for the good of her house. Ladies, let me just encourage you. This is the kind of woman that you want to be, and you want to look for women like this to learn from and to grow with. This is a a model of a a godly woman. Now, Now, guys, if you're single, this is the kind of woman that you want to marry. And you might say, well, I I don't know if I I know any women like this. Well, I don't know if you're a guy that's worthy of a woman like this. So maybe just focus a little bit bit more on being the kind of guy that's worthy of that woman and you'll be ready when she shows up. David sees it. He sees this is a special woman. In fact, my Lord is a phrase that's used in the Bible where wives are speaking of their husbands. Maybe a little foreshadowing there. But second, did you catch how she takes on the guilt of her husband and repents before David? She is leading her house and repenting before David for her family, for her husband, that she might seek reconciliation, restoration, and forgiveness and mercy before him. That's what she does. Third, notice how she gently rebukes David's anger. And she calls him back from vengeance is mine to vengeance is the Lord's. Do you see that? What a gift when you have a wife who doesn't like actually egg on anger, egg on this pursuit and this desire and this longing for vengeance, tearing things down, but instead seeks to turn your attention from vengeance is mine to vengeance is the Lord's. Ladies, that is a great gift to your husband if you can help do that. If you can actually help to calm anger rather than stirring it up. And that's exactly what she does. David, notice, he's not perfect here. David sinned. He was wanting to sin. So catch how different this story turns out for David, Nabal, and Abigail because of what she does. Fifth, there are three results to Abigail's repentance. Three results to Abigail's repentance in verses 32 to 44. First, 
David repents and relents. David repents and relents. Uh, Notice in verses 32 to 35 what it says. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. See, David sees Abigail as an agent of God's restraining grace in his life. He wanted to sin, but God stopped him. David would have sinned more if left to himself, but God himself interceded to restrain him from sin. See, David was an inch away from looking nothing more or nothing different from Saul and Nabal. Don't miss this. When you hear about people following into sin, if you're anything like me, sometimes there's a little voice in your head that says something like, man, I'm just glad I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl is. Anybody have that voice? You don't have to like admit it now. Yeah, okay, some hand's going up. And you start to like indict them in your own mind and heart. And for some reason, it says something, it shouldn't, but it does something about you and how great you are, right? Well, Christians and non-Christians alike do that. Our hearts work that way. We're fallen. We're broken. You know, it's our hearts that say things like, I'm glad that I'm not like that guy who had an affair or, or that woman who stole money from her company or that kid who got hooked on meth. I'm glad I'm not like them. The Bible is clear that we are responsible for our decisions. Very, I strongly believe that. We, we have to make decisions that bring glory to God. But how quickly we can forget that it is not only grace that saves us and grace that transforms us, it is also grace that restrains us from the sins that we would commit if we had the occasion. Now, I remember when I was in high school, I, I, I kind of figured this out. I remember one day, um, I had a friend who wanted to come over, and his mom, they were like, um, what time's curfew, mom? And they were like, oh, you're hanging out with Josh. Oh, oh, well, you don't have a curfew. I was like, wait, what? Like, why don't you have a curfew? Like, oh, because my mom doesn't think you do bad stuff, so we're safe. You're a good kid. And I remember thinking, like, why am I a good kid? Like, why do I have a reputation for being a good kid? And I thought, oh, it's because I don't do bad things. And I started thinking about it. I was like, you know, I think in my heart there are a lot of bad things I want to do, but I just haven't had an opportunity to do them. I probably shouldn't tell her that. That would ruin the curfew deal. But as I look back, it's been God's restraining grace that has protected me from so much. Not because I'm better than anybody else, but because God has just been super gracious. And if we really understand the grace of God, and we really understand ourselves as sinners, we'll recognize that we too are in so much need of God's restraining grace. In fact, we might right now be cursing what is actually an event of God's restraining grace in our lives, and we just don't recognize it as that. Think about Nabal for a minute. Maybe there was a day when Nabal didn't have much, and he prayed for more, and God gave it to him, and he became a fool. His heart became so hard that God could not reach him. 
answered prayer maybe? Hardened heart? An approach towards God? He needed God's restraining grace. It would have been God's mercy not to give him the wealth that drove his heart from him. Maybe for some of us, God is withholding things or giving us what seemed to be what, you know, one famous country musician called unanswered prayers. But God's restraining grace has come into my life in so many ways. A restless Christian mom who 